currently live. Cheers for coming on today, man. How you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I didn't have much sleep last night, so I probably look like total shit. But <laughs> you know what <laughs> well, can I heard you do? You, doing, you said you said you were doing a fitness class this morning, so that's uh... that's that's what I mean. So I've got up early, gone and done the fitness class and that, and now I'm just like. A little, well, I could do with a nap, but it's all cool, you know. <laughs> um, so tell me a bit about your background. Obviously, introduce, uh, introduce yourself to people that may not know who you are and what you do, and then we'll go from there. Yes, well, uh, I uh, sort of started to investigate things, you know, under the veneer of reality, if you have whatever expression you want to, you know, use. Uh, I, I started intensive investigations back in 2003 that was really when i you know kicked off big big time with it started devoting a lot of my time uh and i'd always been interested in sort of ufos and um you know a few things to do with what are called conspiracies you know which has become a bit of a dirty word but uh, you know um i always had this interest for example in uh you know passing in more than a passing interest in the jfk assassination um, because of some coincidences relating to that, which I was actually told about by uh, my history teacher when I was about 14. And, you know, Kennedy had a secretary called Lincoln and Lincoln had a secretary called Kennedy. And uh, both uh, Lincoln and Kennedy were shot from behind, apparently. And uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who didn't shoot Kennedy, but uh, was uh, framed, he was born in um, uh, 90, uh, 1939. And John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839, and there's there's several things like that. And then of course the the presidents that followed uh, Kennedy were uh, both called Johnson. Uh, the president that followed Lincoln was Andrew Johnson, my namesake. So that's kind of a connection. And my birth date is 2211, which I was born exactly a year after Kennedy was assassinated. So that's been a sort of like a bit of a weird connection for me into this that side of things um but in 2003 i was um got a broadband connection here we got uh, you know some of the early broadband uh, sort of links um and i was looking for information on this rendlesham uh ufo incident which uh, happened in 1980 when a number of uh, officers went off base in rendlesham suffolk went to see this object which had apparently landed in the, in the nearby forest and then there were various incidents which have been written about length and um, I was doing more research on that back in 2003 and I found this thing called the Disclosure Project which was Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project initiative where he'd gathered together a lot of military and civilian witnesses to UFO incidents and they came forward to testify um, or they said they would testify before, before a hearing um, you know, as to what they had experienced, what they knew, what they, what knowledge they had of black programs. And uh, in 2003, that was actually two years after this event had happened. This, the main thing that, that I was watching was, was called the uh, Disclosure Project press conference. And that happened in Washington, D.C. in 2001. Big event, lots of media there, um, you know, quite a bit of press coverage considering that's what it was. Uh, but when I found out about it, I found this entry on the BBC website where it said, um, UFO spotters slam cover-up. And I hardly think that uh, Captain Robert Salas, who was in charge of the Minuteman nuclear missile, um, 
in a bunker underground in 1967 in Minot, North Dakota. I'd hardly describe this guy as a, a UFO spotter, nor would I describe uh, John Callahan, the head of the FAA uh, Accidents and Investigations uh, uh, Board or Division, who recounted his knowledge of the Japan Airlines case in 1986, where a uh, captain and the co-pilot of a, a Japan Airlines flight observed a large object, I think for about an hour, on their flight. I think it was in Alaska somewhere it was going to. Um, I'd hardly call those people UFO spotters. So my, my point in saying all of this is that in 2003, I knew there was a UFO cover-up. I knew that this, this had been covered up deliberately, uh, whereas before I'd only suspected it. But this evidence that Greer had put together convinced me beyond any any doubt that there'd been a cover-up. And so I decided to do more research. I started to give some sort of local presentations. Um, I tried to get people interested locally, which uh, was very, very difficult. I didn't really get anyone interested locally. I, I went on to Radio Derby, and I've got a recording of that on my website with another chap who ran a, a UFO club uh, locally uh, called Omar Fowler. And he, he and I became good friends um, over the following years. And um, so that was really what kicked me into this arena back in 2003 and uh, led to the eventually in 2005, uh, maybe 2006, actually. I can't remember exactly when I reg registered the domain name, but... Um, you can look at that online with the you know, who is thing. Uh, and it's checktheevidence.com is my website. So I founded that in 2006 and started to put some of this UFO stuff on there. I started to find out a lot about 9-11. That was my next kind of stopping point. Um, and I was just adding, I've been adding to the website ever since then, actually. So that's now um, 11 years. You know, I don't, I don't have a regular schedule. I just put things there when I'm happy that... Uh, you know, I want that I want to put them out there, and I've researched them and stuff, and that's checktheevidence.com, um, and I think there's about 400 articles on there now, something like that, um, on various topics. So with the um, JFK sort of um, assassination, that because I've obviously looked into that as well, and uh, you know, I think there's definitely suspicious shit that went on. Um, what's your sort of brief overview, like obviously as much as you can? I know it's quite yeah. a deep situation of um sort of the events that happened then and who was involved and maybe what you your take is on what happened that day well it would appear there was a conspiracy to get um london b johnson into power and i think there's quite a quite a strong set of evidence which says that he you know was working things behind the scene not he alone but he and others uh and so that was one of the main things and that you know i think it's probably true that they wanted to get rid of Kennedy because he threatened to break up the CIA and he'd also threatened to kind of reduce or remove the power of the Federal Reserve. Uh, those are two big things. Because, for, for example, not many people know that uh, Kennedy had ordered the issuance of these redback dollars. Um, and, and I think they were government backed. So they, they you know, the government could uh, issue these notes and they weren't bound to charge interest you know they in other words they're immune from this national debt because it's basically government credit essentially if, as I, if i understand it correctly whereas the federal reserve is a private bank and so kennedy realized that the the the, the you know the federal reserve is going to shaft the u.s government 
um, and control all the finances, basically, which has gone on to this day. As to who was responsible, um, well, obviously, there were people in the CIA that were involved. It appears that there were people in the mafia which, which who were involved as well. Um, there was a network there. Um, and there's, I think there's some evidence that Kennedy was actually shot from a, from a storm drain. There's this account of a guy going down into a storm drain, a fairly young chap, as I recall, I can't remember his name, and that you could actually poke a gun, you know, up through the, just near the sort of curbstone, there's a particular curbstone in Dealey Plaza, and that's meant to have been one of the fatal shots, or there might have been as many as six, six people shooting at Kennedy. And, you know, and this, this whole story of the grassy knoll, for example, that's probably disinformation, um, misdirection. Um, and uh, the, the whole thing with the Zapruder film as well, which was this film of Kennedy being shot, which wasn't shown publicly until 1964. Um, that there is also there are two versions of that film, uh, which so it's definitely been doctored that film. Um, and you can you can look at the the analysis of that. There was a there was a chap that was that would actually done a video analysis for the CIA who came out, I think, a couple of years ago, maybe four years ago, and he realised there were two versions of the Zabruder film. There was another team that had been working on it, separate to his team, because he had to present this to, you know, the various uh, intelligence bods at that time, I think, in the, the you know, the mid-60s when they were doing this intelligence work. Uh, you can you can check out that and, and an interesting film to watch is called um, Everything Is a Rich Man's Trick. Yeah, I've seen um, Yeah, which is about three hours long. Now there's some 9/11 stuff in that towards the end, which is wrong. It's disinformation, unfortunately. Um, but I was in communication with uh, a lady called um, Judith Vary Baker, who was Lee Harvey Oswald's girlfriend, and she gained a lot of inside knowledge into sort of the backstory or part of the backstory of the Kennedy assassination and she knew David Ferry and she knew obviously knew Lee Harvey Oswald and she knew Jack Ruby as well uh, a little bit and and she's written a very interesting book called Me and Lee uh, and it has got a subtitle the name of which temporarily escapes me and I recommend people read that uh, which has been published by Ed ha with the help of Ed Haslam and the interesting thing that comes out in Judith Ferry Baker's book, which was why she was involved with it, is a link to cancer research, because she was involved in trying to weaponize a strain of cancer, uh, which was part of a plot to kill Fidel Castro. And that's all described at quite a bit of length in her book, um, which says so called Me and Lee, how I, I, I think so, the, the how I loved and lost Lee Harvey Oswald, I think, something like that. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, everything that I know, Judith Ferry Baker is totally genuine. Her story checks out. Um, essentially was verified by Ed Haslam, who had done a lot of research into the cancer connection due to him, what my pussycat here, walking across the table. We mm -hmm. see. And... Um, he uh, did a lot of research into the cancer connection and uh, he was looking for a domestic laboratory which he'd uncovered in his research into the activities of David Ferry. And then a few years after he'd uncovered this information, he actually found Judith Ferry Baker, who was actually 
one of the people that was doing these cancer uh, research experiments in a, in David Ferry's apartment. So it all checked out with research that he'd done it years earlier. And that Ed Haslund's book is Dr. Mary's Monkey, which covers a lot of the same ground as Judith, Judith Ferry Baker's book does, but from a different, you know, uh, researcher's point of view and different sort of path that he, Ed Haslund followed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that you know, I haven't got a lot about that on my website. I haven't got a lot about the Kennedy assassination. Um, I have got a review of Judith Ferry Baker's book, and I communicated with uh, Judith Ferry Baker on Facebook. Uh, she'd used Facebook. She only came out of the sort of woodwork about uh, 2002, I think it was, uh, and they did a History Channel documentary on her story, which was then taken off their... Uh, website and it was the DVD which was made of that was removed from sale hmm. um, it was part of the Men Who Killed Kennedy series uh, and her, her, her video was taken out of that series you can still get it online if you look around but uh, the History Channel got a lot of heat for, for, for in particular for her her episode and make of that what you will yeah I mean um, <clears throat> what I always find about people that are sort of anti-conspiracy is um uh, they always say, oh, it's just coincidence, you know, maybe someone mm. got lucky and then you kind of get to a point like from, say, your yourself and myself where we look at these things and go, how many fucking coincidences can there be for one situation? Do you know what I mean? So sometimes, like, surely things have got to start being black and white here rather than all these sort of um, riddles and hidden people and suspicious acts right. and yet... Um, you know, I think you know. I think what happens is, and I've I've, I've been putting this in the last couple of uh, books that I've written. Uh, the, the the key thing that needs to be done early on, when when you've got anything that's got to be, you know, like the Kennedy assassination, nine eleven, uh, Diana, when that has been done with state involvement at some level, you know, and the state is involved with that event, and they have to cover it up. They need they create a consensus about what the real story is. And they do that typically within the first 24 or 48 hours of the event actually happening. You get you know, the very first bits that come out will, you know, make people realize you don't really know what's going on. But within 24, or 48 hours, they'll establish a consensus story which they want to become reality. And that that's true of most of the mainstream issues that I've found, you know, climate change, the UFO ET issue, 9-11, Diana, Kennedy, you know, 7-7. Uh, they do, it's the same technique. You establish a consensus, getting, you need a critical mass to subscribe to that consensus, which as soon as you've got it out on the TV, uh, you pretty much got it, you know, because that there's more people still watch TV than don't watch TV, hmm. you know. So, so if you get it on the TV, you get the story reasonably coherent with a with a sort of coherent enough narrative. It doesn't have to be brilliant, just as long as it's good enough. That is what sticks, and that's what gets programmed into people. And then people like us, we're always fighting that for the rest of our lives. You know that that's how it works. Yeah, that whole <clears throat> yeah, man. I saw it on television, so it must yeah. be true. It's yeah. like. Yeah, I fucking saw the Transformers on television. Do you know what I mean? It don't mean it's true. Like <laughs> yeah, things, things yeah. can be faked and lied. But um, talk to me about the because I'm also interested in sort of like the UFO uh, UFO side of things. What sort of evidence have you got or like uh, found 
that supported mm. the claim of existence of UFOs and because I know there's like a lot of um, mm. information out there um, but also mm. there's always especially on YouTube these like clickbaity shitty yes. videos yeah. that you go on and you're like for fuck's sake <laughs> why, why <laughs> well, have indeed. I done this it's, it is I mean the, the, particularly the UFO issue is, is like you say you get a lot of clickbait and a lot of um, videos which are uh, rather dubious um, and you get a mix of good and bad um, so what I came across as I said earlier on I can recommend the the disclosure project videos which are still out there they are the, the, many of those witnesses I think are credible they are telling the truth um, particularly as I say people like Robert Salas the uh, miss missile operator who was in this capsule in 1967 you can check out his story both on the disclosure project and he's given a number of interviews elsewhere um there's also uh dr robert jacobs who i met last september when he came over here for a conference he filmed accidentally filmed uh, a ufo firing a beam at a dummy nuclear warhead in 1967 this uh, so-called big sur in uh, incident um he his account is also to me very credible uh, he doesn't have the actual film because that was taken in a military context he was a, a, a an optical instrumentation officer his testimony is very credible um you can look into that the whole thing with the roswell incident i am convinced from everything that i've read and listened to that uh two at least one maybe as many as three objects crashed in uh, new mexico in 1947 at the beginning of july um and material was recovered and taken eventually to Wright Field, now become Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, and uh, I think the, 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 the thrust of what is in the film Roswell, with Paul David's film from 1994, I think somebody stuck that on YouTube. It's fairly easy to find that online. If you watch the 1994 Roswell film, I think that's a pretty accurate account of the events that unfolded in 1947 what they did in that film they put a bit of um uh dramatic uh you know cr recreation in there and they i think they have this sort of mechanism of a, a, a 1970s reunion of the, the some of the original guys from the roswell case i don't think that 1970s reunion ever actually happened they used that as a plot line to bring in you know the, the other witnesses and, and, and get them to speak to each other in the film whereas that didn't really happen but the rest of it with the object crashing, uh, Jesse Marcel being recovering the debris, taking it home to show his wife and his child, J Jesse Marcel Jr., him putting it under the bed, and then eventually having it give, it, give up to the military. That story, I, I, as far as I can tell, is 100% true. Um, and bits of the, one of the particular areas of interest to me was this so called uh, memory metal, where they recovered this metal um, from the craft. And you could scrunch it up in your hand and then, you know, let go of it and it would it would be perfect. There was no creases, nothing. You couldn't cut it with an acetylene torch. You couldn't cut it with scissors. You know, it was it was completely um, impervious to destruction. Um, and the, the interesting thing is that there are about seven or eight different accounts of people having bits of that metal. 
there's a lady called June Crane. She's passed on. She describes seeing it uh, right past, and it was brought into her office. She was a she was a ty- typist, and one of the officers came in and showed her this. Uh, that I think was in in forty seven as well. She didn't disclose her story until I think she was a couple of years before she died. Um, and you can listen to her account. She's you know there's a recording of her um, that you can find online. Uh, there's another guy called Jerry Croth, who's about, I think he's about 70 now, 75, and he's a lecturer, I think, in psychology, uh, and he said that in 1965, he was shown a piece of this metal, a student came into his class and said, oh, look what I got from my dad, and showed him a piece of this metal, and he kind of didn't really pay that much attention to it at the time, uh, so that's a completely separate account of this of this memory metal. And you can listen to Jerry Cross videos. He he's done some very good, very well kind of narrated videos. There's that. Um, a lot of evidence in the Roswell case. A lot to get through. You can read some of the books. Um, Stanton Friedman again has done a lot of research. He was the first civilian investigator in 1978 to uncover details of the Roswell case. Um, so there's that. Uh, and one of the other things which I became aware of not long after I became aware of the Disclosure Project was something called the Star Child Project, which turned out to be a bit of a misnomer. Um, and uh, the Star Child Project, I've, I've given a couple of presentations on more recently um, due to the uh, death of the person that was involved in the research um, in 2013. Uh, and the star child, what's that? Well, what the star child is, is a real bone skull. And it was uh, found in a cave in Mexico in 1930 by a teenage girl, along with some other bones. And it, there was a human skull and this unusual looking skull found side by side in this c- cave in an old mining area in, say, 1930. She gathered up the skulls. She took them um, home. It was in the... Uh, about 100 miles southwest of Chihuahua in uh, Mexico. Uh, She was on vacation there, on holiday, as we'd say. And she took these skulls, she took them to, uh, she she sort of spirited them away, kept them hidden from her parents who didn't like the look of these. And um, she kept them until she uh, died, basically. And I think it was in about 1994, sometime like that when she was in her 70s or 80s, and she gave these skulls to another family who didn't like having skulls in the house. They gave them to another guy uh, who also weren't that comfortable, and then they passed them on to the current owners, Ray and Melanie Young, who live in El Paso, Texas. And uh, Melanie Young was a neonatal nurse. She knew the skull was um, very unusual because she'd worked with uh, children and you know, and she had a good knowledge of anatomy. Uh, and then she contacted a researcher called Lloyd Pye, who'd done a lot of research into what's known as human origins, you know, and evolution from our so-called evolution or so-stated evolution from apes and uh, monkeys and that sort of thing, which turns out to be highly questionable theory um, for various reasons I won't go into now. Um, so he, he looks at the skull and says, oh, yeah, this is strange. I can see that all the bones are different. Uh, and he noticed that the eye sockets were only half an inch deep. Human eye sockets are two inches deep. Um, the way that the cheeks were, you know, angled was different. Um, and 
he could see that the way that this the bones in the skull were arranged was different. Anybody that wants to look at this can just look at starchildproject.com and look at a video which is 17 minutes long called Star Child for Dummies that Lloyd did in 2012. Um, that's a very good summary of in 17 minutes of all the anomalies. Um, and Lloyd took on this skull. He took it with him. He took it, tried to get it to university professors and so forth. Uh, eventually found a chap called Ted Robinson, who was a craniofacial uh, plastic surgeon, I think was his correct title. But he knew about um, the, cra you know, the, the, hair, the head and the skull and the face and the bones in your face. He knew all of that because he was a plastic surgeon, basically. So he had a very detailed knowledge of where the bones should be. And the, the star child skull, it was completely, he'd never seen anything like it. It wasn't a deformity either. People have tried to say it's, if you go onto Wikipedia right now, you'll see that it's described as a deformed human skull. That is a lie. Wikipedia lies. They censor and cover up this information. And they, if you try and change it and put in reference to research, they will edit it, change it back and delete it. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, that, that is, it, people probably already know that, but it's particularly... Um, uh, galling in the case of the case of the star child skull um, and I, as a result I try never to click on any Wikipedia links now if I can possibly avoid doing so because it's uh, it needs it needs to uh, just go away Wikipedia it's a it is the ministry of truth but that's a little side rant um, so um, star child skull bones all different teeth different uh, the bone chemistry was checked. They dissolved some bone. It had a higher than human content of aluminium. The other, other elemental balances were different. So we've got physical evidence here. It's a physical, real bone skull. It's not a hoax. It's carbon dated twice, 900 years old, plus or minus 40 years. That Those have been done separately. It's undergone testing for DNA. The DNA basically is highly unusual. Um, and that's all on the Star Child Project website. Um, it's been x-rayed. We can see from the x-ray it's not the skull of a hydrocephalic, which is the common claim that's made for it. Neither is it the, the skull of a progeria victim. Um, and uh, the uh, you can see, for example, it's got lines in the x-ray which show where the veins went inside the skull. Um, it also had what are called brain casts done. So you take the skull, you pour a material inside it, you make a cast of the skull of the outside and the inside as well. You pour a material in, you then break open the cast, and you can see what the brain looked like. With a human skull, you see, you know, everyone knows what a brain looks like. They put it on TV all the time. You see this sort of like um, cauliflower type thing, you know. Uh, it, that's what a human brain looks like. Um, the star child skull's brain is completely smooth. It's completely smooth. And if you look at the way that the brain was, you know, sat inside the skull, if, the, if it had sat the same way in a human skull, the brain would have fallen down through the neck and the being would not have lived. But with the star child, it didn't. Obviously, it was a living being. It grew. Living being, it grew. So the brain that it was made of, the material, the substance, must have been different to our brain. Um, so there's all kinds of things that have come out of that research, which has been done over a period of uh, about 14 years. Um, and everything that I followed from Lloyd Pye, you know, as far as I could tell, it was totally legitimate. Um, he would announce the research 
you know, as he was given information about it by specialists in those fields, some of which were named, some of which didn't want to be named, uh, didn't want to be named. Um, that's all on the starchildproject.com website. Um, and I recommend people go and read that because as far as I'm concerned, it is the closest thing we've got to f real physical evidence of an alien being having come to the earth at least once. Uh, 900 years ago um, and I, I and there's been a very troubling development in the last sort of 18 months with the owner now uh, saying that the skull is that of a human child I won't go into all the details those are all on my website but the owner in the last 18 months has now said that the skull is of a human child 14 years 15 years 16 years after actually saying there was no way it was a human child and giving that skull to another researcher you know, this is a very, very peculiar development, which would probably take too long to go into right now. But I've written that up at length. Uh, and, you know, well, I don't know what's going on with it, basically, but I've given a few ideas as to what might be going on. Hmm. But that, to me, is pretty much slam dunk evidence that this 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 was a an alien which came to the came to the Earth uh, and died on Earth. And, you know the uh, sort of uh, 13th, 13th, 14th century, that sort of time frame. Um, so people can go and check that story out. It's very worthwhile of your time. No, I mean, uh, fucking sounds sounds really interesting. I'll definitely be going mm. and checking that out. Sounds like the guy um, who has suddenly changed his story has been, been hushed up, you know? Well, something very strange. Something. Melanie Young, the owner, that's changed her story, and it was Lloyd Pye that did all the research... Uh, he has his own website, LloydPie.com, and he died of uh, cancer. He was a very good friend of mine, actually. It was a huge loss um, when he, when he, you know, when he died, and that was in December 2013. Um, so, you know, p people have said that he was bumped off, he was done in. He didn't think he was, and he wrote about that before he died. But the fact is, uh, he's no longer with us. So. He, he, he can't continue the research and all this debunking attempt that I'm sort of alluded to that came out obviously after he died hmm. uh, which is well you know again make of that what you will no one to back the story hmm. um, so moving on to sort of 9-11 now um, when did you sort of realise there was something fishy about the events that unfolded on that day um, yeah so 9-11 uh, I started following threads from the disclosure project and i came across something about state-sponsored terrorism and i'd never heard this expression and uh, as i've told the story many times i came across this film called 9 11 the great illusion which is by george humphrey and i think that's still knocking about online somewhere and that uh, showed how the towers were actually destroyed at a rate of free fall essentially in other words as Eric Hofschmidt later said in a later video I watched, it, the, the, the buildings, although they didn't actually fall, it, he, he described them, they fell through themselves faster than they could fall through the air. I mean, that's just, it's just totally ridiculous. Um, and, and, and there was a little calculation in this film by George Humphrey, um, <clears throat> which was shown. And I thought, oh, well, that's something I can check that because that's due to the uh, you know, equations of motion that they, they, they calculated this 
for those that know these s equals ut plus a half at squared or actually ut is zero because the initial velocity is naught so it becomes s equals a half at squared so you can calculate the free fall time uh, of an object in other words if you were to take the height of the towers which was 1368 feet uh, about four, roughly 400 meters and you were to drop uh, you know a ball a marble ball bearing or whatever off the top then approximately 9.2 seconds later uh, that ball bearing should hit the ground uh, which was exactly the time if you go and watch the videos and look at how long it took the towers to disappear it's about between eight and ten seconds and that's when i really thought no that that is that is there's no way there's no way um and i remember hearing before sometime before that about michael meacher who, who questioned the official story of the hijackers and how mohammed atta was given money by somebody or other in the u.s government to go and do something and he actually questioned that publicly and he was it was it was lambasted for that i later met michael meacher who was a, a cabinet minister at that time he was lambasted by the the u.s state department you know and just uh, not really they the, the bbc didn't really present his account very well at all as far as i remember um but anyway so that's when in 2000 and i think it's probably late 2003 maybe early 2004 i think it was in this george humphreys film that they put forward this notion that the towers were destroyed with explosion you know explosives with with bombs and i thought yeah it must have must have been something to do with that um and I sort of went forward from there, looking at these accounts of the Pentagon, for example, where this alleged plane crash had taken place, yet there were no, very little sign of, of a plane crash actually in the pictures and the images that came back initially. And indeed, there is a famous clip by Jamie McIntyre, who was a CNN reporter, and he, he's there at the Pentagon, and the guy in the studio says, oh, I understand there's a plane has crashed there. And Jamie McIntyre actually says, you know, on, on the live broadcast, well, I can't see any evidence of a plane crash here. Hmm. There's no large pieces. He actually says that. And then he later had to, of course, you know, give the quote-unquote correct story. Um, and, and he reneged on his own report, uh, you know. But that's that's the Pentagon thing. So I think from, I was first looking at the Pentagon um, after, I think, I looked at the World Trade Center and I remember making some leaflets about that and giving them out to people and stuff at the time um and it was really the next thing was that i was looking more into this idea of the explosives in the towers and i came across this uh, physicist from brigham young university called stephen e jones and um he was talking about uh, this material called thermite having been used not which isn't actually an explosive, it's an incendiary. Um, and they use it to actually weld steel. And, um, you know, he was um, putting out this story that thermite had been used to cut through the steel girders and make the towers, towers fall down. And I kind of bought into this at that time because I thought, you know, he's a physicist, he's from Brigham Young, and you know, I checked him out, he was on their website, he had his own university webpage and stuff. And then a couple of I think it was a couple of months after I first heard him speak, uh, he he said that he was forming this um, group uh, called Scholars for 9/11 Truth, and I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And they had a, somebody had set up a website, and they were saying, you know, if you work for a university, uh, then you can join our 
website and uh, you know add your uh, voice to the uh, dissenting voices which is going to you know um talk to the US government and get them to reopen the investigation and all this stuff you know and I thought well that's a good idea and then I actually had been posting stuff on a forum I posted this thing about the free fall on a physics forum uh sometime in 2005 I think probably mid 2005 and I posted this equation of motion thing. I think you can still find this thread somewhere. I haven't looked for years because that was back in 2005. And um, and then this Stephen E. Jones guy, he actually contacted me and invited me to join this scholars group. Uh, I, I still work for the Open University in the UK. I was working for them then back in 2005. And I work for them now as a tutor uh, I'm, I'm part time and, and I'm not uh, I don't do any academic research into 9-11 or anything like that I'm just a tutor on a IT modules and I don't really talk about this hardly ever if you know if at all actually in open university circles you know people I've mentioned it a couple of times but it never really goes anywhere no. basically um, so Jones and this other guy called Fetzer Jim Fetzer who is very prolific on the internet even now uh, with various websites and podcasts that he does. Uh, maybe talk a bit more about him in a bit. But um, they formed the Scholars for 9-11 Truth Group, which was basically just a website. And they said, did I want to join? They sent me an email and said, yeah, of course. And uh, they set up a forum and they started posting stuff on the forum. And, you know, and it was all, they, Jones had written this paper about thermite and he posted that and everyone reviewed it and I reviewed it. And I spotted a spelling mistake or something and fed back on that and... But I thought this guy was was the you know the real deal, and he was trying to find the truth about what happened on 9/11. Same with Fetzer. Um, but in the course of um, in the course of sort of exchanges with email and forum exchanges and whatnot, I, I began to see that there was another story here as well. That there was something else going on here, and I became uh, uh, familiar over a period of time, over a few months with the research of another of the scholars for 9-11 Truth, Dr. Judy Wood. Uh, and she was heavily attacked, not, you know, by on the mainstream, but on the actual forum. The, the scholars for 9-11 Truth was attacking Dr. Judy Wood's research or just either attacking it or ignoring it. Mm. And I started to look at this, and she was actually talking about the destruction of the towers and how they'd been destroyed. And that's what had initially interested me in this George Humphrey film. And she'd done a rather more elegant uh, sort of analysis than this little equation of motion thing that I'd done. And Dr. Judy Wood was a professor of uh, um, essentially mechanical engineering. She'd actually done the branch off of that. Um, she'd had specialist interests in specialist expertise in interferometry and um, uh, engineering mechanics and uh, materials engineering science. That, those were her areas of specialism. So she, she was used to looking at how materials behaved when under stress, how they disintegrate, you know, when bridges fall down and uh, civil engineering accidents, uh, you know, take happen. She was an expert in those sorts of areas. Uh, stress analysis was another area of her expertise. And I found out about this, and I found this billiard ball example that she'd done, which wasn't a model or anything like that. It was just... Like, let's have a look at what would happen if you had this little model with these billiard balls and each one would drop down, you know, 10 metres and then trigger off another billiard ball and then that would drop 10 metres, trigger off another. 
and she compared this to how the towers disappeared and she did this because to actually consider the problem of the destruction of the towers head-on it's upsetting for people you know because they're thinking of 9-11 so she came up with another example as a way you know of neutralizing that emotional reaction and comparing it to just a set of billiard balls for falling and then you know comparing that to 9-11 and that was illustrative of that there was a problem with the official story that i think was her main objective at that time and people were really knocking this example and jones wouldn't talk about the destruction of the towers in terms of it that how rapidly it occurred he wanted to get everyone to talk about this thermite stuff and uh, i bought into that at first but the big the big thing which came out the uh, the following year, or what I found out from somebody else, it was somebody else that told me, is that Stephen E. Jones had a research history, and his research history was involved with uh, another thing that I was interested in, and it was another of the things that I searched for the first time I got internet access back in 1997, and it was cold fusion, uh, which is uh, an energy phenomenon, and you know, an unusual energy phenomenon. And Jones had done research into cold fusion in 1985. And later still, I found out that it was Stephen E. Jones and another chap he knew called Paul Palmer. They actually coined the term cold fusion. They coined this. Um, and, 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 and there were two chemists to, to explain what cold fusion is. It's an unusual energy effect in a phrase. But it's what it, what it is, and you can go and read about the, the furor over this. There's books have been written about it particularly Eugene Mallard's book, it was an electrolysis experiment. What's electrolysis? Electrolysis means breakdown by electricity. Um, you know, anyone can get a battery, they can get uh, some salt, dissolve that in a glass of water, uh, get two wires going from your battery, attach them to two bits of metal like two razor blades or two pins or um, anything anything that's metal, two bits of tinfoil, uh, Put the two electrodes as they'll be into your glass of water with salt in, and you get bubbles coming off. One and that, that you'll get hydrogen and chlorine coming out of that. Uh, and that's electrolysis. They Pons and Fleischmann did a different electrolysis experiment in the 1980s, and they were using uh, deuterated water, which is water that's got uh, an extra neutron in the molecule. Uh, it's called deuterium D2O. Uh, and they were using a solution of deuterated water and lithium hydroxide, for those that know a bit of chemistry. I know a bit of chemistry, not on a massive amount, but I do know a bit. And they found that under certain conditions, they would get more energy out of their electrolysis cell than they would get in. And it wasn't, it was poorly understood. At times, it was difficult to reproduce. And they came out with this research in slightly unusual circumstances in 1989, Jones, Stephen E. Jones was heavily involved with that in 1989 uh, and Pons and Fleischmann were targeted with debunking, with character assassination and all of this and that was all written up very, very well by another scientist, Dr. Eugene Malov uh, in a book called Fire from Ice and you can get that on Amazon. I, I think it might even be a Kindle version now. And um, so Jones had this history with energy phenomenon research and he was involved in trying to get the research of Pons and Fleischmann into uh, whether you could get more energy out of an experiment than you put into it in other words free energy mm. energy from nowhere or apparently from nowhere but obviously from somewhere um, he was involved in debunking that I found that out in 2007 
and uh, I thought that's that's peculiar. But then I became more familiar with Dr. Judy Wood's research, which had been ongoing since 9/11. Actually, she'd been researching this for by that point six years, um, and she'd started posting stuff on the internet in 2004 to share with a colleague who she was discussing these findings with. And she'd noticed, for example, that there were circular holes in the tops of uh, some of the buildings in World Trade Center 5 and 6. Uh, most of the center of World Trade Center building number 6 was, was completely missing, if you looked from the satellite view. Um, she pointed out that the buildings actually didn't burn up. They didn't slam to the ground. Uh, they turned mostly to dust in midair. And that's actually, as I was to learn between 2007 and 2008, that's what happened. The buildings turned to dust before they hit the ground. The videos prove that. She also had seismic recordings from Palisades uh, Seismic Station and one in New Jersey. They had registered earthquakes and quarry blasts uh, in the region around the time of 9-11. Uh, but they'd also registered that the World Trade Center towers, there was no... Um, there was no, um, I might get the things mixed up, there was no P wave or there was no S wave. One of the seismic waves, I can't remember which one without checking, was missing, which meant that the buildings had actually, they hadn't hit the ground. They'd essentially, the material that the buildings were made up of had disappeared. It had turned to dust. So the seismic reading said it, the videos say it, the aftermath says it. If you look at, for example, the picture taken about uh, one or two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, showing the field around where Towers 1 and 2 sat, there is no debris. There is there is almost none in, in relation to the size of the buildings. The buildings had completely disappeared by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, not completely, obviously, there's some debris. I'm exaggerating slightly. But you go and look at the images again. Um, and then people tried to say, oh, well, it all, obviously all went into the sub-basements uh, because there were nine stories below ground. How can you fit 110 stories of building, compress it down into nine stories underground? How could 14 people survive in Stairwell B? There's a whole Channel 4 documentary made about these guys uh, called The Miracle of Stairwell B. That was made, I think, in 2006, 2007. Go and watch it. These firefighters walked out. They had 100 stories of building above them. They locked up and, and Mickey Cross saw Blue Sky. How can mm. that happen? It could only happen if the buildings disappeared above them and turned to dust, which is what happened. So in other words, without going into all the lengths of it at this point, I realised that Stephen E. Jones was deliberately managing people like me. He was managing their perception. This was another false 9-11 story that Jones knew was false and he was deliberately putting it out you know, to mislead people. It wasn't that he just didn't understand the physics or, you know, he, he, he or anything like that. He was just being a bit dumb. He was deliberately misleading people because the real story was of vast importance, such vast importance that they had to, they had to character assassinate Dr. Judy Wood. And that's what Jones and Fetzer became part of. Uh, and I realised in 2007 that they were out to get her. And I basically ended up writing a whole book it's called 9-11 finding the truth which is available available free download from my website i wrote a whole book about the effort that was been a coordinated effort which was you know significant very significant to discredit dr judy wood and her research um 
And, and Fetzer, for example, just to give you a little bit more about him, and he's still very active. He's still posting stuff online. Uh, he describes me as being part of a Judy Wood cult and people that uh, support the research, which uh, if you support certain things being true, as in physical evidence being correct, that's not part of a cult. That's part of scientific verification and observation. If I say to you that the towers turn mostly to dust in midair, that's not, that's not me being part of a cult. That's something you can go and observe for yourself in the videos. But according to Jim Fetzer, when I say things like that, I'm part of a Judy Wood cult because Judy, that's what Judy Wood first observed mm. and demonstrate those observations to everyone else. So Fetzer, just to give you a little example, I've written at length about his antics. You know, and I'm, my goal is not to be nasty to anyone. All I've done is document their behaviour. I don't really care what they say to me. You know, they can call me whatever they like. It's water off a duck's back. You know, I'm the youngest of nine children. I was called all kinds of stuff. You know, I was um, criticised at school. You know, people call me all kinds of names at school. I don't care. You know, it doesn't bother me. You know, um, but Fetzer, for example, what he did. He invited me, along with Jones, into the scholars group. That was the first thing that happened at the end of 2005. Throughout 2006, I was posting on the forum and stuff and, you know, got to know a few of the people through that as much as one can through forum postings. And um, just one second. Uh, you might have heard the microwave oven going in the background there. Hopefully yeah, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, Fetzer, you know, he invited me then onto the steering committee for the scholars group because he was impressed with my truth-seeking, you know, conviction or something. I can't remember the exact words he used, but I, I put that in my book. Um, so if he invites me onto the steering committee as some kind of, you know, uh, um, commentator or whatever you want to call it surely he values my judgment and in fact that's that's essentially what he said in this email to me so when we get further along in the research with dr judy wood who wasn't invited onto the steering committee i don't think um and we realized that the energy effects that dr would have been documenting for probably two or three years like i say these holes in the building that wasn't the result of thermite it wasn't the result of bombs the building's turning to dust wasn't the result of explosive kinetic energy like bombs or, or anything like that. It was something completely different. It was, an, it was a different type of process. The destructive mechanism didn't involve bombs. It didn't involve nuclear explosions. It didn't involve uh, thermite. It didn't involve any of that stuff. Something else was involved. And in late 2007... Dr. Wood had uh, revisited something she'd stumbled across earlier on, and I'd already been familiar with, but I hadn't made the connection to something called the Hutchison effect. What's the Hutchison effect? It's an energy effect. It's an energy effect that was discovered in the 1980s by Canadian researcher John Hutchison. And he was doing experiments with microwave generators, signal generators, electrostatic fields, a radioactive source, Tesla coils, and mixing together these different types of uh, energy, he was able to get uh, materials to uh, turn to jelly, to levitate, to uh, apparently burst into flames. But the, the, the flames or the, the, the fires, these weird fires, weren't hot. They were cool. They were cool fires. Uh, 
And as Dr. Wood had been through 40,000 pictures of 9-11 evidence, she'd seen evidence the same as what was in John Hutchinson's experiment. Like you've got apparently glowing red-hot metal in a picture in a photograph from the World Trade Center area next to paper. How can that be? If, mm. if, if, the, if the metal is red-hot glowing right, you know, six inches away from a piece of paper, the paper would be charred, it would be, it would be burning. She'd seen this in multiple pictures. So she realised, and then what else have we got? We've got witnesses like uh, Mickey Cross coming down the stairs in the World Trade Centre, reports that his, his helmet is lifting off. He's lifting off as he's coming down the stairs and he has to pull it back onto his head. Hmm. How does that happen? How does that happen? And then we've got, um, we've got David Hanscher, a photographer for the New York Daily News. He's, he's near the towers while they're being destroyed. He's lifted up and carried a block. He's levitated and carried a block. Another another witness, I, the name of whom escapes me, they're near the towers as the building is being destroyed. I'm not saying coming down because it didn't come down. It was destroyed. It turned to dust. He dove under an ambulance. He dove under an ambulance and, and waited for, you know, to, be, to die, basically, because this building was coming down right on top of him. The building has disappeared. He gets up. He dove under an ESU truck uh, like an ambulance. Truck's not there. When he gets up, the truck's gone. So thought the truck had been blown off. If the truck's been blown off, why didn't you feel the wind? Mm. So all of these effects stacked up. And we, uh, I was in discussion with Dr. Wood when she'd sort of put all this together. And we, I'd set up a website for her in 2007, just because I was, you know, conversant with such things. And uh, so she posted this. She'd collected all the images together. We'd talked about the Hutchinson effect. We got some images from John. We'd been in communication with John Hutchinson in Canada at the time. And we posted this uh, on the website. And so we spoke to Fetzer, who was still sort of uh, following our research then. And Dr. Wood um, said, oh, I, uh, Jim, I've got some new images to show you and some new pages on my website I've just posted. And he said, oh, right, well, I'll just go down to my computer then. Went down to his basement, got himself a cup of coffee. Uh, they, he called back a few minutes later when he was ready. Looks, she sends him the link to the new page that we'd uploaded. You know, I, I was aware that this had happened. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Fetzer looks at it. What's the first thing he says? Oh, I've just got to make a phone call, he says, and, and stop the conversation. Hmm. And after that point, basically, and this is all written up in my book at some, quite some length, if uh, anybody wants to read it, uh, he then started to try and character assassinate Dr. Judy Wood and character assassinate John Hutchison, who we stayed in fairly regular communication with at that time. And I'm still in uh, occasional communication with John. Um, so we knew from the evidence that this was an important connection. And it's a connection which even now, uh, 11 years after essentially Dr. Wood discovered this, is rarely talked about. You know, Many of your listeners, I'm sure your viewers will be familiar uh, with you know, the, the alternative theories, if you want to call them that, about 9-11. Very few, very few will have heard of this Hutchison effect connection. Uh, and I, as I said, to take a few steps back in the story, I had been invited onto this. I was on the steering committee for this 9-11 scholars, for 9-11 truth group organized by Fetzer. And I said to Jim Fetzer, look, you know, you need to investigate the Hutchinson effect. I'd already heard of the Hutchinson effect. I heard about it in 1999 because it was covered in a book by uh, Albert Budden that I'd read that a friend had given me then. So I already knew about this. I knew it was uh, worth checking out. And I heard about it in a documentary uh, by 
uh, Nick Cook, which was called Billion Dollar Secret, which talks about the US black programs, the unacknowledged special access programs, and so forth. And, and that was in 1999. So I said to Fetz, you should look into this, uh, Jim. This is really important. And he, he basically blew me off. You know, and then he basically said that at the end of it, I was childish <laughs> and I didn't have a sufficient intellect to be uh, to, to match up to his, you know, and things like that, which, like I say, it's water off a duck's back. You know, whatever my level of intellect may or may not be or whatever my uh, attitude towards Dr. Judy Wood is, does not change the facts that the towers turned to dust. David Hanshaw was levitated, as he says in his account, and John Hutchinson has you know, created levitation effects in his experiments. Whatever anyone says about me or Dr. Judy Wood or, you know, whether we're part of a court, those things will not change, obviously. So we knew that this that this was true. And uh, Dr. Judy Wood, with the help of attorney Jerry Leapart, later uh, on in 2007, she actually started a court case based on this evidence. Again, very few people are familiar with this because it was covered up. And it was covered up by the 9-11 Truth Movement, funnily enough. And again, I've written that up at length in my books. Um, so to explain a little bit about that. Um, so we got all this evidence. Towers turned to dust. Buildings disappeared. Thousands of pictures, witness testimony, levitation, all that stuff. Uh, so we then, Dr. Wood had been looking at the technical reports which were produced by the US government to explain and describe the destruction of the World Trade Center. Now, there's another little sort of little coincidence here. We talked about coincidences earlier. Earlier coincidences earlier on. Here's another one. Um, in 2005, the U.S. government department, known as NIST um, or Body, which is the National Institute for Standards and Technology, uh, they released 10,000 pages of technical reports about the destruction of the World Trade Center. And they, these reports were meant to sort of analyse in detail what happened to the towers, why these alleged plane crashes caused the towers to, you know, come down, in mm. their words, to collapse. Uh, I've managed to avoid using that word until now because the towers did not collapse. Um, and they, they produced these reports, which was called the Collapse of the World Trade Center Towers, the final report or something. Now, this report was created because of a mandate from Congress uh, and Congress mandated NIST, who were given a budget of $16 million in around about 2003 to investigate this destruction. Um, but what NIST did is they didn't produce the report themselves exactly. They actually used 23 contractors, 23 private companies to produce these reports. Two of those companies are of particular interest which most listeners probably will never have heard of because, as I say, most of this has been covered up by the 9-11 Truth Movement, as I've been saying for ooh, eight or nine or ten years now. Um, Science Applications International Corporation, that's one company, now branched off partly into another company called Lidos, L-E-I-D-O-S, and um, Applied Research Associates. Now, Science Applications International Corporation, they apparently had like a coordinating role in bringing these reports together to make the final sort of package. Um, and you can read about their contracts uh, somewhere on the NIST website. If anybody wants to, any of these links to this information and can't find it themselves, please write to me at checktheevidence.com 
Uh, I've got a contact button on there. You can easily write to me and just ask me any questions that come up following uh, anything I discuss here. I'll try and send you the links and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so, Science Applications International Corporation, they coordinated some aspects of the reproduction of these reports. And then there was another company called Applied Research Associates who produced um, reports about the alleged plane crashes and how, you know, these planes sort of crashed into the buildings and they produced some of these computer animations and which simulated how the damage occurred and stuff. And there was another company called Underwriters Laboratories and what they did was they built a, a section of a floor of the World Trade Center in their warehouse. Um, and you know, they built it to the same specification with the same materials, the same fireproofing, the same dimensions. I think it was a third of a floor or something. I, I, you can find it in their report if you really want to. And then they set this on fire um, and they burned it for half. Uh, sorry, they burned the, uh, you know, the, this model they built twice as hot twice as long and the metal was still there you know it didn't turn to dust it didn't fall down it was perfectly fine after the fire obviously apart from the actual you know char marks and things yet they signed off on that report that fire had destroyed the towers that is science fraud that's science fraud so that so what they committed was in other words to, to say what this case was based on um just one second Um, so, so what that was based on uh, was that they, the court case was based on this idea of the Data Quality Act. The Data Quality Act in the US says that if you're a company, you produce reports, you have to produce an accurate report. And if you've been paid money and your report is inaccurate, a person that spots the inaccuracy can re request correction of your report and if you refuse to correct it you can sue that company that's produced that report under what's called the data quality act so dr wood had identified as i've already said that the towers didn't collapse uh they they turned to dust before they hit the ground so that report was wrong that was an error in the report and she submitted a 50-page document called the request for correction she, she submitted that in april 2007 and um she said to nest you must correct your report because it's wrong and if you don't i'm going to sue you under the data quality act or i'm going to sue the companies that produce these reports for you yeah. and with the help of uh, jerry leapart that's what she did and uh, the point about why i'm going to all this quite lengthy explanation is and there's a lot more besides is those two companies that I've two of those three companies that I named, Science Applications International Corporation and Applied Research Associates, are both military industrial contractors for the US military. And both of those companies do research or have done research into directed energy weapons systems. So what we're talking about here is that the World Trade Center wasn't destroyed by terrorists and hijackers neither was it destroyed by thermite nor was it destroyed by bombs or nukes or any conventional type of explosive device or anything like that it was actually destroyed by some type of directed energy weapon that is the truth it's not a theory that's what all the evidence shows both the evidence of from the site the evidence of the aftermath the evidence of the people involved with the 
technical reports, the evidence of witnesses, all of it, every bit of it, shows that the World Trade Center was destroyed using an energy weapon. No, it wasn't a mixture of things. It wasn't a bit of this and a bit of that. That's what destroyed the World Trade Center, a directed energy weapon of some type. And they need to keep that covered up because the technology that has been used to destroy the World Trade Center could be used in another sort of mode of operation to produce all the Earth's energy that we need for everything. No fossil fuels, no nuclear power stations, nothing. This technology, if used properly, could produce all the energy that we need. It could give us space travel, all of that. All of that comes out of this research if you explore and take it to its logical conclusion, which is what you know I spent a lot of time doing. Um, so that, in other words, Stephen E. Jones was put in and he came onto the scene in August, sorry, in September 2005. That's when he came onto the 9-11 research scene. You know, I'd been involved for about a year before that, before I heard of Jones. So when the NIST technical reports came out, I think, and this, this bit is a theory, this is my theory on this particular bit, that Jones was given a brief to say, you have to steer anybody away that starts talking about energy effects or cold fusion related things, because that's what we found out later. The cold fusion ha has certain um, unusual phenomena associated with it, like low levels of nuclear radiation. With cold fusion, you do get low levels of nuclear radiation, much lower than you'd get with conventional um, you know, nuclear reactors such as you have at, uh, you know, Sellafield and Three Mile Island and all of those. And guess what? Radioactivity was discovered uh, following the destruction of the World Trade Center. It was a, uh, and, and a form of uh, hydrogen called tritium that was discovered in the World Trade Center site in um, bottom of uh, World Trade Center 6 in the water there, about 50 times the normal background level. And that is consistent with the sorts of things that were found in cold fusion experiments by people like John Bokris, who was a chemist from uh, Texas A&M University. Uh, so that's all on record and had been on record since the uh, 1990s. So that, again, shows you that they had to keep this covered up. <clears throat> the other thing that is an enormous part of the cover up has been the weather. Nobody talks about the weather on 9-11 except to say uh, that it was a beautiful sunny day when it happened. That's pretty much all you'll get in talk about the weather. Very few people, very few people will talk about what was 500 miles off the coast of New York City. Uh, are you familiar with this at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was the it was the hurricane or the tornado. Um, hurricane Aaron, yeah. Towards, yeah. And yeah. then it hurricane just turned Aaron. around and went somewhere else or it just disappeared i can't really remember the the, the story i'll there. tell you the story yeah yeah so when did you become familiar with that when did you hear about it roughly because um, you... i i watched um dr judy wood's where did the towers go presentation so um i'm obviously familiar with like the dustification and uh, the, oh, cars, good. the cars that are like burnt on one end and not even marked on the other end so yeah i'm fairly familiar with it obviously i've watched it for a right. while so it's so that's like a couple of years ago you watched it or was it um, like recently no yeah about a couple of years ago a couple right. of years yeah okay so right so you, you take, take that a couple of years ago so that's we're talking then um 20 uh, 15 or 20 um 
2016, something like that. You know, so we actually started talking about Hurricane Aaron. It was Dr. Judy Wood essentially discovered that in April, sorry, February 2008, 2008 when she discovered it. And she started compiling information about it. And April 2008 is when we put it on the website. So you probably found out about it then roughly eight years, eight years <laughs> after we started putting that information out. Why I'm going to that, you know, being pedantic about that, it's to try and illustrate to people how the cover-up works. You know, you as a person who's interested in the alternative knowledge research and, you know, call it conspiracy theories, I hate that term because it was invented by the CIA, but you as somebody who's interested in that, you know, you didn't become aware of it until eight years after that information was available. Mm. And there may be many of your listeners that are hearing this information for the first time. Um, so, yes, you're right about the hurricane. It was 500 miles off the coast of New York City. It was, um, I've told this this count many times, it's in the Hurricane Data Center. If you go and look at that, you can find Hurricane Erin, named on the 1st of September 2001, traveled across the Atlantic, hit Bermuda on the 7th of September, did a bit of damage. CNN reported that story, did a bit of damage on Bermuda. And they said, don't worry about it, it's going out to sea, nothing to worry about. Pretty much traveled in a straight line for four days, made a beeline for New York City. And bearing in mind the fuss that's been made about other hurricanes that have since followed similar paths towards New York City, I think we had one last year or the year before, it was Hurricane Bill and Hurricane Sandy, and I think there was another one last year, the name of which uh, escapes me. Uh, no one, hardly anyone talked about Erin. In fact, you can see the news broadcasts from the morning of 9-11, two of them don't even mention it. Two of them don't even mention this hurricane, and yet it's literally, the, the outer bands are on Cape Cod. If you go and look at the map, you'll see that Cape Cod is fairly fairly cl close to New York. You know, it's a couple of hundred miles down the coast, but it's in a, by a line of sight, it's not that far away. And as you said, this hurricane went right up uh, and the the uh, it stopped. Eight o'clock in the morning on 9-11, it was closest to New York City. It was at its widest expanse. It was traveling at its slowest speed. And then on the 12th of September, it made a 130-degree turn headed out to, towards Newfoundland. So how does that happen? How does that happen? How does that happen? How is it that we have a weather event that's coincident with the events of 9-11? Is that a coincidence, everyone? Is this really a coincidence? It's, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of strange sort of going-ons and, and phenomenons. I mean... Um... I remember seeing the footage in uh, Dr. Judy Wood's presentation where it was almost like a dome shape and there's a woman in a, her apartment and she's like recording out the window and you can see the dust coming along, hits a point and goes up and um, there's like grass, green grass, perfect on the other side and then just it's almost like there was like a, an invisible wall. That's like the best way to explain it and obviously this is footage of someone's phone from the hotel room, it's recorded it. So little things like that I think to myself... What, like it's not natural to see do you know what I mean like obviously so for a, an everyday person to try and comprehend these things that they just think oh that's that's a bit weird but whatever you know whereas when you look at it from a maybe a scientific standpoint you're like well this shouldn't be happening so what's going on um... exactly that particular footage was by Bob and Bree and there's, there's uh, some uh, interesting things about that footage which uh, 
uh, I won't discuss now. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And that that footage there, that that's that's one of the key pieces of evidence that you see this dust roll out, and then for some reason it stops at a certain point and goes up. So so that as you say, if you've observed that scientifically, there is information there. And what it appears, for example, to explain that is that the dust was actually continuing to disintegrate. In other words, the towers turned to dust, but that dust itself was becoming finer and finer in, in, in particulate nature, such it became lighter than air and started to actually ascend into the upper atmosphere. Mm. And that's how Dr. Wood actually found Hurricane Erin, because she was looking where this dust went, and she looked for satellite pictures. And on one of these, she found uh, Hurricane Erin, and that's when she found that trail. But this, of course, uh, then opens up this idea that somebody can move storm systems around because really, is it really possible to plan 9-11 and destroy the towers with a weapon just at the same time as a hurricane is actually hovering off the coast? Or is the technology also available to steer and move that hurricane so that it's put there? I think it's the latter. I think that hurricane was put there. Whether it was deliberately created or not, I don't know. You know, they may have may have just been created with normal processes that create hurricanes, and it was just kind of amplified or or, or reduced or attenuated or whatever. You know, throughout its life to make to make it so that they could use it for 9/11. But people might be asking, and I always get asked this question. So, oh yeah, so let's just go with your theory. It's not really a theory; it's an observation. Um, that the hurricane was part of the events of 9-11. What was it there for? Did it provide a power source for this, you know, magical directed energy weapon as James Corbett, this legendary researcher, describes it? James Corbett, who won't talk about any of this, yet will talk about and ridicules the research of a scientist who's far more qualified than he is. James Corbett ridiculing a scientist who tells him and explains to him what 9-11 is all about, uh, you can watch a thing I posted about him if you want, or read a thing I posted about him in the past. Um, so, what is it? Is it really possible then that this 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 technology exists? Well, yes, it is because if you look at the evidence, it's highly suggestive that that's what happened. That this hurricane was put there for a reason, and that reason was to provide an electrostatic field. In other words, a field of electricity which somehow was utilised, we don't really know how, but it formed part of the process that destroyed the World Trade Centre. Now, funnily enough, why I say that is, again, we go back to the experiments of John Hutchison, who uses an electrostatic field for part of his experimental research, and his electrostatic field was provided either by a Van de Graaff generator, which people might have seen in a physics class in school, which um, is where you get this rubber band thing, giant rubber band on a, and a thing that spins around. It charges up this silver dome with uh, electricity. That's Van de Graaff generator, um, or, or a Tesla coil, which is a more sophisticated version of the same thing. Really, um, that's what John Hutchison was using. He was using electrostatic fields to help create these effects of levitation and metals turning to jelly and so forth. So we argued, Dr. Wood argued primarily. Um, that they were using the hurricane because everyone knows that a thunderstorm has a electricity associated with it, you know, um, obviously uh, um, flashes of lightning and so forth. But you can feel dry thunder was actually reported at all three of the New York airports, JFK, LaGuardia and Newark, on 9-11. 
So the influence of that storm system was it did reach as far as New York City because the dry thunder reports proved that. Dry thunder means they heard thunder, but there was no obvious sort of downpour of rain. So we would argue that that's what the hurricane was there for, that it was it was used as a component or as some kind of catalyst to make this weapon system work in the way that it did. We can't really say much more than that because, you know, we don't know anybody in the military. We don't have any, like, you know, military sources that have confirmed this. Other people like John Lear have claimed that, you know, they've had corroboration of certain aspects of this, but they've certainly not contacted us directly. Um, you know, there's nothing really that, 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 that have come to us that, that from deep throat sources or whatever you want to call them that, that have confirmed this. But we know that that evidence is there. So, in essence, we don't need those sources to confirm this because the evidence that's available in the public record, you know, NOAA's website, NIST, um, videos, witness testimony, it all tells the same story, basically. So we don't really need any sort of military confirmation of that it's real because we know that it's real, you know. I mean, the, um, the, the video footage is also, like, suspect to, for myself because, like, like you said, it was meant to be a clear day. Um, you know, sunny skies or whatever, blue skies. And yet, when you see some of the footage from like the news reporting stations and that, the like backdrops all different colours. And I'm just like, I think I think there's a there. mixture of reasons of that. Yeah, I mean that's that's another thing which we you know we haven't talked about much yet. But the whole, you know, what happened with the plane scenario because that is what impinges I think on what you you were mentioning there about the backdrop. Uh, as you say, it's, it's true that if you look at if you go into the Internet Archive and look at the video record from 9-11. Uh, I think they've got 11th and 12th of September, the whole day's news in the archive there, I think. You can see, yes, the, the sky does look different colours, and I think there's different reasons for that. Um, some of it is just to do with the type of camera they were using, some of it is to do with the type of tape they were recording it on, um, and things like that. People have tried to say that video fakery was used uh, and that, for example, the plane crashes, which we haven't talked about, were, um, weren't real. Uh, and I agree with that. I, I don't think the plane crashes were real. But the way that people like um, Simon Shack, uh, Ace Baker and a few other people have explained it is that they said that the planes, there were no planes in the sky at all. And the impression of planes was created in news broadcasts by... CGI, you know, computer-generated imagery. So they'd had a 3D model running in a computer, and then they, you know, had that fed into the news footage somehow, uh, a method which by which they hadn't explained, uh, and that had produced these apparent uh, planes on on the news footage, and therefore it was video fakery. Uh, and I investigated that as well, and I bought into that as well, much as I bought into the thermite thing around about two, around about the same time. 2007-2008 and I did begin to wonder about this idea of what happened with these planes um, and uh, there was there was uh, quite a lot of investigation going on there particularly with this film called September Clues by Simon Shack uh, which I was quite drawn into watching and actually and um, uh, eventually I realized that much of what is in that September Clues is itself disinformation and that's because there's a big problem with the video fakery arguments, um, and that is that witnesses, some witnesses reported seeing the planes, uh, 
and that cannot be explained easily by the CGI arguments. The way that the CGI proponents explain it is that they say the witnesses are actors, you know, employed by the, the US government or the CIA, whoever, to put out a fake story that they saw planes when actually they didn't. But there are actually quite a lot of these people. And I've spoken in person to a couple of these people and they did actually see planes. I mean, uh, and I've spoken to a couple of people that didn't see planes when they should have seen them. Uh, and I did this article in 2007, oh, 11 years ago almost now, called Going in Search of Planes in New York City. And I identified from uh, 500 witness accounts. We were using this in the court case, by the way, in 2007. That was why I did this research then. Uh, there was another court case uh, settled by Dr. Morgan Reynolds about the plane crashes. And um, I looked at all these witness accounts and I identified, I think, 117 people that were uh, at or near the World Trade Center during the time of the destruction. But only about 20% of these witnesses of the 117 actually saw the plane uh, and only about 20% heard the plane and only 8% saw and heard the plane out of those 117. Other people have tried to misquote these uh, results saying that only only 20 people saw it, only 20% of people who were there saw it. No, only 20% of these 117 people I identified from their witness accounts are on the New York Times website as being there. There were obviously thousands of people around the whole area. Um, and um, so we, you know, the, what the, were they all actors, these people that saw the plane? Were they really? If you, you have to read their accounts, I don't think these people are actors. No. I think what we're looking at is something much more complicated. Um, and again, we're looking at the use of technology. And particularly this, to me, became much more powerfully apparent in 2012 when Richard D. Hall had published a, a six or seven months analysis that he'd done where he'd taken 26, I think it was, of the amateur videos of the plane crash, which was flight 175, in other words, a second alleged plane crash. Um, and he'd mapped those onto a 3D model of uh, from that he made in Google SketchUp. And he overlaid the 3D model's appearance with the trajectory, which came from the radar that data that NIST had published. NIST had published data, uh, radar data which showed the actual path a flight 175 and some people have said that the video faker was proved because the you know in one plane sorry in one video the plane comes in with a dive in another video mm. it comes straight on you know one it comes at one angle another another angle and so said so, oh that's clearly bogus that must be video fakery because the plane's coming at different angles but if you look at richard d hall's analysis you will see it was a line of sight effect when he wraps these videos onto the 3d model they all marry up perfectly in other words, this plane followed the radar path precisely, or pretty much as you know, within a margin of error as you could establish within the data that Richard had put into the 3D model. It all followed it. So to me, that disproved the video fakery argument. And I saw that there was an effort by people like Simon Shack to promote the video fakery as the only explanation because Shack particularly said... Dr. Judy Wood cannot make reliable conclusions about the destruction of the towers because she relies on video evidence. And the video evidence is fake. It's all fake, according to Simon Shack. Therefore, we don't know how the towers were destroyed. That statement by Simon Shack 
is a lie. It's a bald-faced lie because, as I've already said, Dr. Judy Wood did not just use video evidence. She used seismic evidence. She used witness testimony. She visited the site. She looked at the aftermath. So does that mean that all the videos of the aftermath and all the photos of the aftermath are also faked? Mm. Because all of that evidence you know, proves what Judy Wood says is correct. And it's not a theory. That's the proof. It's there in the events themselves. It's there in the aftermath. So in other words, Simon Shack was deliberately promoting a false explanation and he wouldn't see it any other way. When I pointed these things out to him, he said he wanted to believe that the towers were destroyed using conventional controlled demolition. In other words, place charges you know, set up in a time sequence. He wouldn't have it any other way. And more about this has come out since 2012, actually, that Mark Conlon has written up in quite considerable detail. So in other words, what I think is, to sort of summarise that, the thermite evidence and story was put together and promoted by Steve Nee Jones to cover up the fact that advanced covert technology was used to destroy the towers. You know, some fancy weapon system that the the US military industrial complex or the global military industrial complex or somebody, we don't know who, has. And they do have it. That's not a theory. It is real. It does exist. We don't know who owns it. We don't know exactly how it works, though we know the sorts of effects it creates. We don't know how it's powered exactly. Um, we don't know who developed it. We don't know who sanctioned its use. We don't know any of that. We just know that it's real. We know that it operates on the principle of field interference. Um, so the thermite stuff was designed to try and cover that up, to try and stop people knowing that. And that's been very successful. You still hear people talking about thermite. You still hear it to this day and you'll hear it after this day as well. It's another sort of conspiracy consensus that's been created after the, the sort of hijacker story began to fall apart. Um, and then the video fakery argument has been used to cover up technology. What technology? Some type of image projection technology that they've also got, which works quite well, but it's not perfect. And I think this technology didn't give a perfect reproduction of a plane because um, some people didn't see the plane. So from where they were standing or where they were filming, uh, there's very few that didn't pick it up on film, actually. Although there's a few videos which have claimed to show, um, you know, no plane on the crash. Um, some people didn't see it because the image projection technology isn't perfect. So depending on where you were standing, the light and so forth, it looks like there was a chance that you may not have seen a coherent image. And that explains why, to me at least, why some of the videos show a sort of silvery coloured plane, a light coloured plane, and some show a dark coloured plane. Because depending on where the video was shot from, you, you got a different look, a different appearance of the plane, because the image projection technology wasn't perfect. So that is what I think is how they've managed the perception of 9-11, and it's been a huge success, you know, because... Uh, most people talk about CGI or plane crashes or bombs in the building, and very few will tell you what I've just told you. Mm. What happened um, quickly between, uh, was it you and Richard Gage? Did you have like a bit of a, a spat or an argument? Or Well, I've never, I've never spoken to him uh, personally, um, but the point about Richard Gage is, much as Simon Shack, Richard Gage claims to be a 9-11 truther. In other words... He points out that the official story of 9-11 is false 
And of course, you know, based on what I've just told everybody, I agree with that. But uh, he then took forward, in other words, to get to just give you a little bit of a timeline. I won't go into great length here, obviously, because we've been on this a long time now. But Jones, basically, when we started talking about the cold fusion links and other people as well, it wasn't just us, but it was probably primarily us. He kind of faded off the scene and the scholars group kind of just faded away, this 9 scholars group. So they needed another entity to suck people in. And that entity was the architects and engineers group. And that domain name was registered and their website became active very close to the time that Dr. Judy Wood's court case started. So we thought that was another distraction exercise that they created. Mm. And Gage started doing talks and saying, oh, you know, we know that it was controlled demolition and the buildings were brought down with explosives. And there's explicit statements about that in their so-called mission statements of the time. So I knew from the get-go in 2007, I was already clued in enough by then to know that Richard Gage was a liar, basically. He was a liar. He was, he was deliberately misleading people just as Jones was, but he was doing it in a slightly different way. And then it came, became clearer in 2011 when another chap who supported Richard Gage called Matthew Naus, who ran a group in um, uh, Milwaukee, I think it was, he actually helped organise talks for Richard Gage in 2011. Have, yeah, it was 2011. Uh, for his architects and engineers group, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth is no such thing, by the way. Um and then he showed Richard Gage Dr. Judy Wood's book because Matthew Naus had a copy. Matthew Naus watched Richard Gage's reaction. He started laughing at this book, but he, he wanted a copy. And I have a copy of a check signed <clears throat> by Richard Gage. It's on my website, paying for a copy of Dr. Judy Wood's book. <clears throat> Where did the towers go? I've got a copy of that. It's on my website. I've got a copy of the contents page where it lists the um, subheadings where Dr. Wood talks about thermite. She talks about bombs in the building. She talks about buildings collapsing. It's on the contents page of her book. Yet Richard Gage has continued to claim publicly that Dr. Judy Wood ignores that evidence. No, she doesn't. Mm. It's in her book. So Mr. Gage, like Simon Shack, is a bald-faced liar. Now, I've never had the opportunity to call him that to his face, but it's been on my website for five years and I've, you know, I've done several presentations like this. He's never picked me up on it because he knows that it's true. I know that it's true because I've got the evidence which proves that it's true. He has a copy of the book. Are you telling me he's got a copy of that book and he hasn't read the contents page? If he has, what does he think he's doing? Why is he, if he's leading a group called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, why is he not looking at the forensic evidence that's in that book that's been taken to a court of law? Why is he not doing that? Basically, the point is, he has no escape. He has no escape from that from that situation. So anybody that promotes Richard Gage anywhere on Facebook, on the internet, they are promoting a CIA-run disinformation campaign. And I've written more about that, again, in my second free book about 9-11 research called 9-11 Holding the Truth. Uh, download those. There's audio book versions of those. All on my website, all free. Uh, I put everything that I know in there, um, that I and the research that I've been involved in now for over 12 years um, you know so anybody that wants to get all the gory and occasionally well often boring details actually uh, it's 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 all it's all it's all it's all in there for anybody who wants to, to find that it's all public nobody's asked me to take it off nobody's asked me to take it down because 
it's all true you know as far i mean i'm 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 t- i'm saying that so you have to check for yourself whether i'm telling the truth or not okay well um we've been going for a while so mm-hmm. what we'll do is um we'll end it there if you're okay with that yeah um yeah. that's absolutely fine I'm happy to talk for uh, as long as you need me to talk and uh, yeah we can uh, we can certainly end it there and uh, yeah yeah and uh, i'll talk to you off camera anyways um but cheers for okay. coming on hopefully we can do this again and maybe go into more information on sort of the towers and the dustification and the sort of evidence supporting around that that would be quite cool sure and yeah. as i say if anybody wants to contact me just go to check the click on the contact and uh, you can get to me that way i'll um get you to send over your link to your website and uh, put them all in the description box anyways for anyone that wants to uh come check you out and contact you but yeah thank, thank you. you for coming on i really appreciate it thanks very much